You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It was in Eureka College, a small liberal arts college in Illinois in the 1920s, when Reagan realized that he had a particular skill. It happened in the midst of a labor strike. The college was threatening staff cuts. The teachers were ready to walk out. The students felt that their degree, the premise of the school, the education they got, and the reputation of the education in the future would be compromised. And they looked for someone to speak to the students at a rally that would determine if the students wanted to join a walkout in support of the teachers and against the budget cuts and the current college president. They looked to Ronald Reagan. He led a committee that recommended to students that they go on strike and protest. And after the committee meeting, he made a speech to the rally. Giving that speech was as exciting as any I ever gave. When I'd say something, they'd roar after every sentence. And after a while, it's like the audience and I were one. After Reagan's speech, the students overwhelmingly decided to leave their classes, to stop going to class, until the budget cuts were withdrawn. Not only were those cuts withdrawn, but the president who had initiated them, the president of the college, resigned. Ten years after his speech, he'd be in Hollywood. Here is a special report from NBC News. Well... The time has come. You've seen the map. We've looked at the figures, and NBC News now makes... If you were watching TV election night 1980, NBC, with Tom Brokoff and John Chancellor, you'd see a giant map behind them, with, even in the early going, a large amount of blue states. Texas, Illinois, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania. Another big industrial state, Brokoff says, and the numbers tell the story. Ohio comes in blue. The state of Georgia is red. Not enough for the avalanche of other southern states. Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina all come in blue on NBC's giant map. Except in this election, in 1980, and on NBC, blue states mean GOP states. Reagan is winning. Ethnic Catholic Blue Collar, says Chancellor. Or, in the Reagan campaign computers, ECBC. Ethnic Catholic Blue Collar. It looks like Jimmy Carter is winning the city of Detroit, but is losing the rest of Michigan, 59 to 37%, Brokoff says. He continues. A sad night for the president. This has not happened to a president since Herbert Hoover. President Carter, an incumbent, has lost his office, it's obvious from this map. He picks up four states, Georgia, Minnesota, West Virginia, and the District of Columbia show red on the map, but that's it. The rest is a sea of blue. Flash forward four years. Same thing, except this time there's even more blue states. Reagan wins everything but his opponent's home state and the District of Columbia. 
Walter Mondale, former vice president, Reagan's opponent in 1984, says in his concession speech, I want to thank the people of Minnesota. You've never let me down. It was all that he could say, as Minnesota was the only red state on the map for the Democrats in 1984. And even that was close. 49 other states voted to keep the president, President Reagan. That night, I can remember my father, union member, member of the Postal Union, fairly proud Democrat, maybe voted Republican here or there, but saying, just wait for the working man's vote to come in. And this was probably around 8 o'clock or so, and uh, my grandmother turned and said, well, Larney, I think it did. I think so many other people in my father's demographic voted for Reagan, picked up union households, as they said, ethnic, Catholic, blue-collar. Reagan turned democratic towns into Reagan democratic towns. Howard told me on the steps of the Capitol at the time of the inaugural, he said, Mr. President, I want you to know I will be with you through thick. And I said, what about thin? He said, welcome to Washington. The point is this. Reagan was, whatever else you think of him, an awfully good politician. As a presidential candidate, there is no comparison to modern times. A Republican who could win New York, that hasn't happened since Reagan. He could persuade and reach outside his base. Republican as comfortable in Massachusetts as he was in South Carolina. Like no Republican president since 1988. He could play in California, where two terms had served as governor and had connections in the political and entertainment world. Yes, this was a president who, as a Republican, was comfortable with the Hollywood crowd. In terms of historical presidential politics, Reagan beats all of the moderns. He bests Carter, Ford, his own vice president, makes Clinton's victories look small, beats out George W. Bush and President Obama, even in his big historic 2008 win, leaves him in the dust. Just show you how youthful I am. I intend to campaign in all 13 states. <laughs> it is obvious now that in today's presidential politics, we rarely think of 50 state campaigns. Reagan ran one. He didn't engage in the current politics of, let's try to turn six to 12 swing states in order to win the election. His name was viable everywhere. This is the result of a president that has been called the great communicator and also a president that presided over an economic recovery, reduction of inflation, triumph over recession, over unemployment, and saw all of it improve during his time. He could talk and he could listen and shape his message accordingly. He was an actor, one that always showed up on time and knew his lines and delivered them with gusto. Probably his most important role was as George Gipp in the movie Newt Rockney about the famous Notre Dame coach. Reagan plays the football player George Gipp, whose dying words were, go out there and win one for the Gipper. So the image of Reagan is pretty strong in people's minds. One of the things that Tip O'Neill talks about is how he always knew Reagan before he actually ever met him when Reagan became president. That was the first time he met him in the flesh. But he always knew of Reagan because... Reagan was always on TV. He was always a part of American life. He was significant in the movies at a time when a lot of the people, the older people in politics during the 80s were growing up. And he was on radio and TV throughout the 60s and 70s. He was a significant governor of a large state. If you're aware of the criticism that you'll hear today of Reagan, oh, he was an actor, that criticism was stronger back then even. Because back then you didn't have the record of him as president. So there was this strong criticism of you know, him as an actor. I remember a comedian during the 1980 election dismissing the three candidates. Because it was Anderson, Carter, and Reagan as, you know, peanut farmer, actor, and a lawyer. That actor criticism was always there. 
A common assertion was that he only read scripts, and certainly he did better when he did read scripts, but it isn't all he did. Critics even at the time criticized his use of the teleprompter machine. He was always better reading from a prepared script, biographer Luke Cannon said. The teleprompter, though, as we all know now, is used by all presidents. His habit of reading from index cards, even in smaller meetings, not just during speeches, but even in smaller meetings like those with congressmen, was unnerving for many of the Washington, D.C. politicians. Jim Jones, who was the appropriations chair of the Congress controlled by Democrats, remembered how in meetings with him he would read from index cards while he expected more interactivity as a D.C. politician. He was the least attentive to detail of any president, Jones said, and I worked with all of them since Eisenhower. Oval Office visitors sometimes found him to be gazing into the distance, Colin Powell noticed him staring at a squirrel out the window during an important meeting. The Washington types might be unnerved by White House staff standing close to Reagan and looking in his face and talking very loudly for anyone else in the room, very loudly, as his hearing was poor. All this leads to criticism that still dogs his legacy. Questions as to, was Reagan real? Was he really in charge? Questions that were even stronger then than they are now. And my opinion of it is that the most extreme criticisms in this direction are only tapping into Reagan's sort of style of working. Despite his hearing, he was a good listener. Better than he was a talker. And that might go against the great communicator moniker, but as Michael Deaver said, Reagan didn't work rooms. Someone he was speaking to could count on his attention for an entire conversation. He wasn't looking for who would be the next person. When uh, one of the aides, Ken Alderman, had a party and invited Reagan as well as several congressmen, several cabinet officials, but also invited his father, a laborer, Alderman was surprised that the president spent the whole night with a room full of Washington politicians and cabinet members he could talk to, he spent almost the whole night talking to his father. Well, perhaps that's the whole point. Listening was what led to the communicating. He could relate to everyday people because in some ways he was one of them or kept at that level. He could pull off the outsider bit in the White House and explain complicated ideas in simple phrases. Luke Cannon of the Post said, While Reagan started out in politics as the aloof celebrity, content to soar above the political battlefield, he learned gradually how to focus his personal charm upon the lowly riflemen of politics, the assemblymen and congressmen who have to vote each day and give their constituents a plausible account of their actions. When he looked at the camera and spoke, it reflected his experience as an actor, but other things as well. Here's what Mike Deaver says. You know, Clinton's good, but I get the sense he doesn't like the lens right up in his face. He's done just a few Oval Office speeches. Reagan did many of these. He understood that there was a real person behind the lens. And that's what made it authentic. The lens was something he was used to. Movies were a part of the world that he grew up in. Perhaps Reagan was an outsider in an era of thermonuclear weapons and desktop personal computers in the 1980s. The man in charge of the country was born in 1911 when Taft was president. He was older than John F. Kennedy would have been. He was older than Jimmy Carter or George Bush, slightly older than Ford. He grew up without television when radio and movies were king. I've always been a little uncomfortable with the whole actor-president thing because every president brings to the job skills from what they did before. The actor-president thing gives the impression that Reagan couldn't tell the difference between acting and being president. I don't think that's accurate. What it, The most accurate a way to express what I believe was going on is that he was influenced by his previous career that the things that were important to him 
very often were the things that were important to the last career. There's a story where he had told an aide that he was so upset with President Nixon. But Reagan actually was a great supporter of Nixon, even throughout Watergate and everything. So it wasn't about his politics. But he was really upset with President Nixon because he missed the line during a speech defending himself on Watergate. He was supposed to stress this syllable. That's what disappointed him. So there was definitely an influence from that previous career. It's about making the big line. It's about the timing. And there were definitely some frustrations from staff in that Reagan was kind of like a big casino better in a sense. Uh, I'm thinking of Jim Baker, that it was tough on the staff because he was always relying on the big speech to get out of trouble rather than the, the little processes that go on in a presidency. The past presidents were lawyers, engineers. They all had their own influences from those previous careers. I mean, to say Jimmy Carter, for instance, wasn't influenced by the fact that he had been a naval engineer or run his father's peanut farm after his death and had to be involved in intricate details. To say that didn't influence how he approached his presidency would be illogical. To say that the fact that so many presidents are first lawyers doesn't influence probably in a negative way how they might be able to relate and the way they make speeches, I think that would be a valid point too. But Reagan's ability to communicate is actually a rare skill, one that only a few people had in the office. FDR, Kennedy, the skill that he had had effects on other domestic and foreign policy challenges that he had as president. It wasn't something irrelevant to it. Tip O'Neill had to stop going to airports because the popular support Reagan had gotten so strong that he was getting yelled at in airports by people saying, leave the president alone. Why are you giving him a hard time? So he'd work Congress in a way that all of the studying of the political legislation and political implications may not help with. Other presidents and politicians pine for his ability, but lack it. As voters of a particular party, you know you want someone with those communication skills and you're always seeking it out. You cringe when bad speeches are made. You don't salute the person for having a great analytical skill, going to make a great president someday. And I think the acting career is baked into the cake of so much of the Reagan presidency that the comparisons made of other politicians today to Reagan, whether it's made by themselves, which is quite often, or by others, fails. Reagan's skills were unique. Having made his decision to be a communicator, in his career during a time of labor strike is fitting in a sense. And when Reagan was a union president, he was an awfully good one. He served twice as the representative of the main actors union, the Screen Actors Guild. He served twice, once in 1947, served till 1952, and then again he was brought back in 1959 to 1960. In both cases, Reagan, as a union leader, was able to extract concessions from the studios. In the 1940s, he threatened a strike in order to get concessions from the studios. It was in 1960 where there's a, a victory that Reagan achieved as SAG president that doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, something had changed. Television had grown in popularity, and while in the 1940s, during that term as SAG president, he had extracted residuals for actors in movies that were made specifically for television, but movies that were made for the theater and were being put on television to raise extra money for the studios, actors weren't getting residuals on that. By 1960, this was looking like a big problem. None of the studios wanted to talk to him. They didn't believe him. He had threatened to strike the last time in the 1940s to gain concessions. Was he crazy? They wanted to reduce costs for movies, not increase them. Reagan called for a strike. The SAG members agreed. And all acting work in Hollywood ground to a halt. It didn't take long. First Universal, then MGM, then Paramount, then Fox all fell in. Actors didn't get everything, but future movie actors would get residuals, and the studios agreed to retroactive residuals to movies made between 1948 and 1959. Retroactive payments. 
Now, this is interesting. A lot of Reagan's popular movies were made before that time. So he didn't benefit as much. Actors, some of them, notably Bob Hope, didn't like this deal and criticized Reagan at the time. Most, though, were okay. And Reagan insisted to his union that it was the best deal they could get and the benefits in the future would be tremendous. Actors today, even many of whom, who probably do not have a high opinion of Reagan, benefit from his skills as a labor leader in 1960. And he remains the only president to have been the head of a union and certainly the only president to have led a strike. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We thought he was bluffing. An air traffic controller, a member of the Professional Air Traffic Controller Organization, would be proven wrong. In 1981, the union, known as PATCO, began negotiations with the new Reagan administration, continuation from those with Carter and the Transportation Secretary, Drew Lewis. They wanted a big increase. They had a couple of things going for them. They ran the entire network of air traffic in the United States. They were skilled workers, and it was not easy to replace their skill. At minimum, 21 weeks of training were required. Their grievances, too, were understandable. They were working long hours. But something else. PATCO was one of the few unions in 1980 to back the Reagan-Bush ticket. Thus, the initial negotiations went well. And over the first series of months of the Reagan administration, Transportation Secretary Lewis offered them a generous increase, 14%, more than any other federal workers were getting. The union leaders take that to the PATCO members. They reject it. They announced plans for a strike. The PATCO president, Poli, makes some strong statements. told that there isn't any legality behind a public union striking. He says the only illegal strike is an unsuccessful one. Reagan said he would refuse to allow a strike as the workers were public safety workers. And their negotiation, instead of being between an employer and his employees, was one that was using the safety of the public as a leverage in the negotiations. Private workers, he insisted, have a right to strike. He indicated that those that joined a strike, an illegal strike, would be terminated. Some PATCO members responded to the president's threat and the appeal to public safety. PATCO group, as a union, had among their members, many military members, about 30%, few thousand stayed on. Robert Poli uh, held a conference. He announced that PECO's membership had rejected the administration's $40 million offer, 95%, 95% voted no. Then said he was going back to the original union demand of close to $700 million in higher wages, cost of living differentials, four-day work weeks, retirement at 75% of pay for tw- after 20 years. He wanted immediate raises of 10000 for all 17,500 controllers. They cannot fly this country's planes without us, and they cannot get us to do our jobs if we are in jail or facing excessive fines. On August 3rd, Poli scheduled a strike to begin at 7 a.m. President's wake-up call was at 8 o'clock. Came downstairs. Senior staff was waiting with recommendations. Reagan had a portrait of Calvin Coolidge in the cabinet room. Now he repeated what Coolidge had once said. There's no right to strike against the public safety of anybody, anywhere, at any time. President appeared at the Rose Garden and made his private comments more public. Let me read the solemn oath taken by each of these employees. 
I am not participating in any strike against the government of the United States or any agency thereof, and I will not so participate while an employee of the government of the United States or any agency thereof. It is for this reason I must tell you those who failed to report for duty this morning, they are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their job and will be terminated. In the staff room, he confided with the rest of the staff, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry for them. I certainly take no joy out of this. Public was on Reagan's side. Uh, telephone calls, telegrams to the White House that day supported the president's stand more than 10 to 1. Washington Post, David Broder said, the message is getting around. Don't mess with this guy. Philadelphia Inquirer said, Ronald Reagan is a cross between John F. Kennedy and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 13,000 controllers struck on August 3rd. That left 4,000 who either weren't in the Union or decided not to strike, about 2,500 supervisors, and 2,000 military controllers in airport towers. Airlines were told to cancel about half the flights. Some of them coordinated to go to the most profitable destinations. At one point, the Transportation Secretary, Drew Lewis, is worried because Reagan's going off to California after his stand on the PACO strike. And he was worried that some of Reagan's friends with private jets would try to talk him out of this. They were getting a lot of flack from businesses who relied on air travel, especially business executives who travel by air a lot, that uh, this PACO strike would be a problem. According to Lewis, Reagan gave him the strangest look and said, Drew, don't worry about me. When I support someone and you're right on this strike, I'll continue to support you and you never have to ask that question again. The airlines focused on big cities, 50% reduction in flight. The FAA began to increase its courses for new traffic controllers in its school in Oklahoma City. They used the remaining workers. There was no doubt air travel was impacted during a time of recession, not a great time for that. Those who didn't come back to work after 48 hours were indeed fired. And most of them did not get their air traffic control jobs back. One of the things that Reagan did do was eliminate a prohibition on federal employees who were fired from getting another federal job. But it wasn't until 1986 that they could even apply to be an air traffic controller again, and many did not. There were already many replacements hired at that point. Reagan got a decent amount of credit for his stand. Over time, though, not everyone has been so pleased, and Patco, as an item in Reagan's legacy versus its position in the actual history of events at the time of 1981 is seen in a very different light sometimes. It's seen as Reagan declaring war on labor. Labor leaders, and some critics of Reagan now, view it as a signal to private companies at the time that they could be tough on strike workers. And there were several strikes in the 80s where companies brought in replacement workers. The connection, though, is not clear. Probably the best impact was in federal and state and municipal governments. It probably empowered some mayors to do similar things. Uh, postal workers were reportedly ready to go on strike after PATCO did, but they decided not to. Reagan was careful to separate public unions from private. But he also appointed secretaries of labors during his presidency and NLRB members who would favor businesses over unions in their decisions where possible. AFL-CIO head Lane Kirkland called the Patco strike reaction a brutal overkill. But there wasn't sympathy strikes. Pilots, mechanics remained on the job, made no effort to join them. The Democrats in Congress, a few statements but no major criticism of the action. Indeed, there's a couple of things going on here. Ted Kennedy and some of the congressional leaders, according to Transportation Secretary Lewis, calmed down a bit on the criticism. They felt that the demands of the PATCO were too extreme and the $10,000 increase too extreme. 
The strike had some security implications, too, that PATCO was teetering on the edge of, that Reagan never brought up during the debate. Military aircraft were also subject to some of the air traffic controllers, and the strike may have jeopardized uh, that. wasn't brought up. Reagan said later, I think it convinced people who might have thought otherwise that I meant what I said. And there has been a debate since then as to many commentators have said, hey, the Soviets were watching the PACO strike. And this is what first convinced them that this guy means business. Indeed, we saw recently uh, Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin, while he was in a battle with his state's public unions, he had proposed legislation to remove the right of the public unions to collectively bargain. He used the example of Ronald Reagan and the PACO strikes and said that records indicate that the Soviets were impressed by Reagan's action on PATCO, thereby justifying it. That's been debated. Certainly, there are no records of that that can be found. The U.S. ambassador to Soviet Union at the time, Jack Matlock, said that there is no evidence of that whatsoever. What you do have is some comments made by Tip O'Neill, visited the Soviet Union and said, oh yeah, the Soviets saw that this guy means what he says because of Patco. There's a lot of speculation that has almost become evidence. In my view, it's not clear that the Soviets had any particular direct reaction to the Patco strike. The first set of Soviet leaders certainly didn't approach the Reagan administration in any different way. I tend to believe what uh, Peggy Noonan, Reagan's speechwriter, says about it. Well, how can you say that it didn't have influence? They had eyes. They saw the event. But there doesn't seem to be any record that there was an actual impact among Soviets. Still, Paco was one of the positive events of 1981 for the Reagan administration. But events later in the year and then in 1982 would not be as favorable. On three noticeable fronts, the administration suffered. The tax cuts of 1981 did not produce immediate recovery, but rather unemployment climbed. And indeed, by the end of 1982, it would reach a high of 10.8%, one of the highest unemployment rates in modern American history, only gotten near during the Great Recession in 2009. An official recession is declared in 1982. Also, support for budget cuts became minimal, dissipated. Third, and partially the, the, the fault of the first two, the budget deficit, Zoom. Reagan had knocked Carter during the 1980 campaign. There might have been as much as an $82 billion federal deficit. That would be a dream for his 1983 budget, when every projection, even some of the conservative ones, estimated over $100 billion in deficit. We are really in trouble, Reagan wrote in his diary at the time. Since OMB director David Stockman's computers had projected 5% growth in all of the 1981 plans, and now there was a recession, we were, said Stockman, in a totally different ballgame. He warned Reagan in November of deficits of $400 billion between 1982 and 1984. Jim Baker said both parties lost their appetite for budget cutting on the Hill. So had a lot of cabinet officers, and in his own way, the president. Stockman tries for big cuts. So one of the things you can say about uh, David Stockman is he really was the purest in terms of budget cuts. He wanted something big. Eliminate Head Start. Eliminate farm subsidies. Reduce Social Security. Reduce the precious military budget. He goes in, tries to argue directly with Casper Weinberger, the defense secretary, all these calculators and numbers, the defense secretary says he he's, was a very unsure person. He argues for some kind of revenue increases now, maybe a gas tax to make the budget work. Reagan rejects all of this. Washington newspaper columnist Evans and Novak noted, Reagan's fighting two-thirds of his own staff now. The proposal from Democrats in Congress was simple. Eliminate, you know, we'll let you have the 5%. Tax cut in 1981, we'll let you have the 10% tax cut in 1982. We, we want you to eliminate the third year tax cut in 1983, that third 10%. Not in a million years, Reagan says. Treasury Secretary Don Regan was enjoying a bit more influence 
than he used to have in the beginning of the administration now as we reach 1982. Reagan had a slightly different take on economics as the former head of Merrill Lynch than some of the true supply-siders like Stockman or his congressional ally, Jack Kemp. It was a simple idea, he said, that cutting taxes and cutting federal budgets would control economic policy. Economy was more sophisticated than that. He was not impressed with the idea that a cut in taxes would increase tax revenues. The idea worked out by Arthur Laffer, his famous Laffer Curve, and Reagan felt that only modestly fit into what Reagan really wanted to do. No human being likes to admit that he is in the dark on important questions. This tendency is stronger in Washington, Reagan wrote. Nobody wants to ask a dumb question in a meeting like, what's a Laffer Curve? By the end of the first year, hopes that economic and social revolution could be achieved through radical cuts in federal spending had run aground. February 1982, unemployment was topping the 1980 election. Prime interest rate was at 16%. GDP was shrinking. Business organizations actually urged a tax increase to reduce the deficit to calm down fears. Now Republicans in Congress, notably Bob Dole, finance chair of the Senate, not only urged the White House to raise taxes, but said if they didn't propose it, Congress would do it themselves. Even Stockman, his large budget cut program no longer being popular, changed his tune. I didn't put my supply-side ideals away, he said, but I locked them in a box. If we couldn't make big cuts, tax increases were necessary. From Christmas through spring 1982, Reagan still held to his program, absolutely wanted the 5, 10, and 10% cuts to remain in place, and wanted to wait and see what happens with the economy. He tries to meet with the chair of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker. At first, Volcker refuses to meet with the president. He considers his office to be independent doesn't want to be influenced. Eventually, a meeting is arranged. Volcker agrees to go to the Treasury Building, not the White House, and has a meeting with Reagan and Reagan. Reagan tries to get him to abandon his policy to, of high interest rates to cure inflation and to lower interest rates. And there's two meetings held between 81 and 82. He's not successful in either of those meetings. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Eventually, Reagan agrees to allow Baker, Reagan, Stockman, a few others to negotiate with Capitol Hill, O'Neill, Wright, Jim Jones, other Democrats for a series of talks. They call them the Gang of 17. They meet various places, try to throw off the press. But as unemployment's increasing, something else is going on. Reagan's approval rating in December 1981 sinks to 49% mostly because of the recession. Should be noted, many presidents operate in that level through much of their presidencies. But this isn't the same Reagan of early 81. 
The talks are held up by the fact that the Reagan administration wants more budget cuts than the Democrats do. And the Democrats are insisting in order to compromise on anything regarding budget cuts, they want two things. They want revenue increases, tax increases, and they want that third year of Reagan's 81 tax cut to be eliminated. The talks get stalemated there. Here's something significant happens. Reagan asks to speak with Speaker O'Neill directly. And Reagan goes to his office. They talk for three hours. During that talk, Reagan wants $100 billion in cuts. Democrats are only willing to go 36. Reagan goes down to $60 billion in cuts. Tip O'Neill won't go there. After three hours, Reagan offers to cut the difference between them. O'Neill's not interested. He's looking at the poll numbers. He's looking at the recession. He believes, and he'll say this years later, he believes in his mind that the tax cuts and the entire Reagan economic package was a silly thing to do. It's counterintuitive, counterproductive, and the American people will figure it out soon. Reagan leaves with no deal. And he tries what he had done in 1981. Goes on TV, shows charts and graphs showing how the Democrats' plan will lead to higher deficits in the future than his. And I ask you once again to contact your congressmen and urge them to support our economic plan. Unlike 1981, this speech did not set the phones in every congressperson's office ringing off the hook. For the most part, the public declined to get involved in this one. This forced Reagan's hand, and another set of meetings happened. His key aides, the troika of Meese, Baker, and Deaver, with the support of Nancy Reagan, tell him there's no choice. Reagan ends up not only signing, but working Congress to pass the Tax and Fiscal Responsibility Act of 1982. It raised $98 million in taxes. Now, they called them revenue enhancements, business fees. A lot of it was eliminating certain deductions, increasing cigarette taxes. The rest of the story is that Reagan is one who cuts deals, said Lou Cannon, Reagan's uh, biographer, who had followed him from California to the White House. Indeed, as governor, Reagan had done a similar thing, passing one of the largest increases in the state of California's history. And Reagan, this time in an executive office, would raise taxes many times after his well-remembered 1981 income tax cut. Bruce Bartlett famously wrote in the National Review, usually a friendly place for Reagan, Reagan cut taxes every year except for his first and last in office. He did some kind of tax raise Every year, indeed, in 1982, he'd raised taxes twice, once with the Tax and Fiscal Responsibility Act of 1982, and then again with a highway bill that would increase gas taxes. He'd increase, in 1983, a Social Security payroll tax, 1984, a deficit reduction tax of $50 billion. Reagan was never afraid to raise taxes, David Brinkley wrote. Yet, that doesn't mean that he enjoyed doing it. When the Troika cornered him, Baker, Meese, and Deaver, after the failed speech, the GOP congressional feedback and everything else, all of the fiscal facts on the ground, that he needed to pass tax increases to save what he had done already, Reagan looked at them and said, All right, goddammit, I'll do it. And with that, he slammed his eyeglasses down on the desk. Jim Baker noted later, I thought they were going to break. So Reagan the tax cutter is Reagan the tax raiser after all. He raised taxes. That's simply true. It's true and it's not. Still completed some of the largest income tax cuts in the nation's history. And he never backed down from them. Never had to drop his 5%, 10%, and 10% cuts of the first year. And as an artful supporter on the website Quora wrote recently, 
calling Reagan a tax razor would be like saying Michael Jordan missed baskets sometimes, or that he was a bad baseball player. This is somewhat true. He did end up raising taxes as part of a combined economic policy, but he took a lot of actions. Increases were one. Some budget cuts were others. The need to increase the military was, of course, a key driver of the deficit, which drove these tax cuts. And so you can't get into that debate without getting into the debate about the Cold War and the need for spending, which we will. He did not act to the level where, say, David Stockman wanted. In 1982, uh, Stockman tried a quiz to show the impact of cuts. He used a kind of budget war game where Reagan could select various cuts on various programs, and then he'd add it all up and see what the deficit impact was. Stockman found no doubt that Reagan routinely backed off from big cuts when he saw the impact on people, if it was explained. If, for instance, he said that somebody would be getting $1,600 less in their Social Security checks if we passed this particular cut, Reagan would say, well, we obviously can't go that far and go with smaller options. His war game budget ended up with a score of an $800 billion deficit over the course of four years. Cuts were never proposed or delivered in any meaningful way that would have made tax increases unavoidable. Indeed, as David Stockman leaves our story, because he's really only a factor in the early going in the Reagan administration, he notes that his last meeting with Reagan in 1985, Reagan read from a series of index cards about how good he was at proposing budget cuts. It was a fitting end, Stockman said. Events are starting in Poland, where there's a popular uprising against a Soviet-influenced government there. Reagan seizes the opportunity. He's going to call for revolution, at least within Eastern Europe, and he's going to be in support of eventual groups that will bring democracy to these countries. He's going to predict a future day when this will happen. The commissar in the Soviet Union who went out to one of those state collective farms, grabbed the first worker he came to, said, how are the crops? Oh, he said, the crops never have been better, just wonderful. He said, how about potatoes? Oh, he said, comrade commissar, if we could put the potatoes in one pile, they would reach the foot of God. And the commissar said, this is the Soviet Union. There is no God. He said, that's all right. There are no potatoes. A trans-Siberian pipeline that would provide oil, Soviet Union, and to European markets was financed by German, French, and Japanese banks and constructed by European companies. The pipeline project was proposed in 1978 as an export pipeline from a field in Siberia Consortium of German banks, led by Deutsche Bank, agreed to provide billions of Deutsche Marks in credits for building compressor stations. French banks got involved, and the Japan Export-Import Bank got involved as well. Numerous companies in France, in Germany, pipe layers were bought from Caterpillar. Americans decided to target it. The U.S. prevented U.S. companies from selling supplies to the Soviet for the pipeline. And it became a source of tension between Europeans and the Reagan administration. During 1981 and 1982, the U.S. sanctioned several European companies who were participating in the project and honoring contracts with the Soviet Union. The sanctions had the effect of making the pipeline more costly for the Soviet Union, though the sanctions were lifted in late 1982. President Reagan will make a speech to the British Parliament. Margaret Thatcher is the Prime Minister. is a big supporter of Reagan, and the reception is a very good one. Now, I don't wish to sound overly optimistic that the Soviet Union is not immune from the reality of what is going on in the world. It has happened in the past. A small ruling elite either mistakenly attempts to ease domestic unrest through greater repression and foreign adventure, or it chooses a wiser course 
it begins to allow its people a voice in their own destiny. It's ridiculed by the Philadelphia Choir as an appeal to flower power. But it's seen as prophetic now. What Reagan really does in this speech, which makes it so historic when you look back at the last group of presidents, Nixon, Ford, Carter, is take a break from them. When one is studying Reagan, you have to study it as a break, not only from the democratic policies of Jimmy Carter, but also from the detente policies of the rest of the GOP, probably the majority of the GOP, that looked at the Soviet Union as a negotiating partner. And detente viewed the world as having, as having zones, Soviet sphere of influence, American sphere of influence. So for instance, when in 1956, there was a revolution in Hungary, the United States did not get involved. Same thing happens in Czechoslovakia in 1968. United States is not getting involved. It's not in our zone. We're not starting a war. Reagan remembers those events. In this speech, rhetorically, Reagan amps up the game. Because he's actually, for the first time in at least four presidents, questioning the legitimacy of the Soviet Union. Here among you is the cradle of self-government, the mother of parliaments. Here is the enduring greatness of the British contribution to mankind, the great civilized ideas, individual liberty, representative government, and the rule of law under God. I've often wondered about the shyness of some of us in the West about standing for these ideals that have done so much to ease the plight of man and the hardships of our imperfect world. This reluctance to use those vast resources at our command reminds me of the elderly lady whose home was bombed in the Blitz. As the rescuers moved about, they found a bottle of brandy she'd stored behind the staircase, which was all that was left standing. And since she was barely conscious, one of the workers pulled the cork to give her a taste of it. She came around immediately and said, here, there, there now, put it back. That's for emergencies. <laughs> well, the emergency is upon us. Let us be shy no longer. Let us go to our strength. Let us offer hope. Let us tell the world that a new age is not only possible, but probable. This is part two. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.